Fantastic. Uh, welcome to another episode of Soccer's Is That So, the show where we talk about everything tech, VC, and finance. I have a very special guest today uh, who is the COO of Diversity VC. Sarah Miller is here with us. Uh, welcome to the show, Sarah. Sorry, going off of mute. Yeah, thanks for having <laughs> me. Excited to be here. Absolutely. Uh, so I've been trying to speak to you for a little while because you've been doing amazing work in the VC space when it comes to diversity and inclusion. And we were actually recently um, connected at a dinner that you hosted in New York. And there you shared the findings of uh, the equity record, a really in-depth report. And I mean, we can just kind of go into why you wanted to create this and kind of why diversity VC exists in the first place. Sure. So I'll give kind of the backstory for Diversity VC and thread that into the why we had the dinner and kind of what we're, we're hoping to get out of that in the future. So um, Diversity VC is an organization, a global nonprofit that was started over in the UK back in 2016, 2017, um, really on this basis of research and data. At the time, there wasn't a lot of research being done into the gender gap, the race gap, the you know, all of the gaps that exist in venture capital and ultimately in founder dynamics. So the people who were writing checks were not diverse. The people who were receiving checks were not diverse. And there was kind of this unspoken hypothesis or spoken hypothesis, but not proven hypothesis that diversifying the venture ecosystem would lead to greater distribution of venture dollars to underrepresented founders. And so we started over in the UK with a bit of research looking at how many female or women identifying GPs there were. Um, and then when we came to the US, we were looking a little bit more, and this was back in 2018. And then again, in 2020, we did a report on the venture dollars and where they were going in terms of demographics of founders. And as a surprise to no one, the numbers were abysmal. So less than 2% of capital going to all female teams, um, any people of color, so black, Latin, Latinx or Latine, um, indigenous, kind of any, any way that you cut it, anybody who was underrepresented in the industry, meaning not white, male, college educated, and particularly like elite educated, so Stanford, Harvard, uh, Wharton, et cetera, was not receiving venture dollars. They also weren't allocating the venture dollars. Um, and so when we did these two reports looking at the founder side of things and things didn't change year over year, we said, we need to go a layer up and understand why this is happening and why it's happening uh, or why, why change isn't happening. Um, and so we wanted to look at the mandates that uh, funds have to invest in founders that are from underrepresented groups, especially after George Floyd was murdered in 2020. And we saw this huge influx of talk around putting more capital to work in those areas. We wanted to see if that was actually flowing down based on the numbers that we saw in founders, meaning how many founders are raising this capital. It hadn't changed. And we said, well, we, we thought that there was all of this stuff happening. They were all talking about it. And so we did this research at, at the level of GPs, asking GPs not only how they identified demographically, but also how were they using DEI, if they were, to allocate capital. And ultimately, what we found was less than 2% of the assets under management in the venture industry are earmarked for investing into underrepresented founders of any 
definition. So women, people of color, LGBTQ+, disabled uh, immigrants, et cetera. And so that number, uh, coincidentally or not, is very in line with the amount of capital that we actually see flowing to those founders. Um, and so we, as, as you attended, we got together with some of these dinners with LPs, GPs, some community organizations to say, why is this happening? Can we change the way that capital is being allocated? Is this the right way to do it? And what we're hoping to do over the course of 2023 is a repeat that research and see if anything has changed, but also really leverage some of that data to bring these groups together more consistently to talk about, okay, what is it structurally that we need to change about the way that VC is done at the LP level, at the GP level, at the founder level to see these numbers actually start to move. So that's a bit of history, rationale, where we're going. Yeah, no, I think that's that's fantastic and kind of sets the context as well. And I think you hit the nail on the head, which is how do you change things structurally? Um, because it's one thing to do something at a point in time when it's in the news, for instance, George Floyd. Um, and then it's another thing to change the way LPs and GPs structurally allocate capital. And there was actually an interesting report by Harvard where they showed whenever race is in the news, for instance, um, minority fund managers are able to raise 60% of the time, but whenever race is not in the news, it's less than 10% of the time. So mm -hmm. it kind of shows that it's a moment in time as opposed to a structural change. And I, I definitely think we need to address that. Um, what are some of the barriers you're seeing towards changing things structurally? Uh, because what I always hear is, oh, there's either a pipeline problem, which we know has been debunked so many times, regardless of the data that's been shown, or they say it's the returns are not there. And then the data shows the same thing that, you know, it, it returns are the same. So what do you think we need to do to change things structurally or any hypotheses there? Yeah, I think that there's a couple, there's a couple of things that we're hearing that are structurally preventing a lot of the founders that we are GPs really that we work with from raising capital. And one of those is size. So if you look at just the spectrum in our report, showed this but again we're we're kind of just putting numbers to what everybody knew um and these aren't these aren't necessarily new figures they're just coming out in a in a quantitative fashion where somebody can point to it and say this was you know this is a survey of over 200 gps or over 200 vcs this is not just like me saying this is what i'm hearing so size wise most of the funds that have an underrepresented gp in their partnership or that have a mandate to focus on underrepresented founders are significantly smaller. So 57 million on average versus 350-ish million on average for non-DEI funds, which encapsulates both of those categories. And so if you think about, especially these very large institutions, when they're making commitments to underrepresented led funds, a lot of them will have, and this is, again, what we're hearing anecdotally, a lot of them will have um, structural barriers in the form of, you know, we have to invest $50 million and we can't be more than 10% of the fund. And so just structurally, you're cutting out the vast majority of these emerging fund managers that also happen to be underrepresented because the way that you're uh, the way that you're trying to allocate capital is not matched to the way that they're trying to raise capital. And so it's a lot of money seeking out very, very few opportunities. And from what we've also seen in terms of like where the gap is in terms of funding for underrepresented founders, you're not really targeting that gap where they they need that startup capital to really 
get to series A, series B. And so that that's part of it from some from a, uh, sorry, from some of the institutional players, that kind of structural barrier to not being able to invest in truly emerging managers is putting a, a stop on those funds actually being able to to achieve the size and the the impact that they would like to have. Um, yeah, I think another. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was saying yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. But go on. Another thing I think that we're hearing is there's there is some I don't want to say mismatch, but diversity means a lot of things to a lot of people, and so depending on what type of LP you're talking to, they might say we're only focused on race or we're only focused on gender or we're only focused on this thing. And it means that everything is kind of reduced. Like it's very reductive in terms of looking at the person that you're trying to invest in. Does this fit my narrow definition of diversity? Have I not really defined diversity for myself? And depending on where on the spectrum you fall, you might say, you know, we we can't make this investment because it doesn't fit as you said, like what's in the news right now? Am I focused on women? Am I focused on people of color? Am I focused on the indigenous population? Like it, the, the needle swings very frequently, meaning that the focus area of a lot of these LPs is kind of following the, the news cycle rather than following like a defined uh, perspective and a defined approach to how they're going to make these investments. Um, and so that's, that's a couple of the things that we're hearing. Um, the, I think the other structural thing is just network, like the the idea that you need a warm introduction, you need to spend, um, you know, three, four years with these people be on fund number four before they're going to evaluate you as an opportunity means that, you know, where where all the people that are investing in fund one, it's going to take you a lot longer to raise that capital. You might not have the um, I think we hear from a lot of uh, a lot of folks, you know, I'm being told to raise a $10 million fund to have fund one and to be able to prove that out. And if you come from a low income background, raising a $10 million fund, quitting your job to do that, you probably aren't going to be able to pay yourself very much. And so, again, some of these structural barriers to how are we actually practicing venture capital and how are we enabling people from these backgrounds to break into venture capital as GPs means that we probably are going to have to reevaluate some of those requirements of first time fund has to be small and you have to not pay yourself. Your GP commit has to be, you know, some crazy amount before uh, an LP is going to take you seriously. And so, and there are, I, I would say we've heard of, of some solutions to these problems, but they're not, um, they're not scaled at any, uh, to any degree. And so it's working for a handful of people, but not for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I'm in that exact same position right now of, you know, $10 million fund, you know, GP commit and all that. So I, I definitely resonate with that issue and that problem. Um, I was actually at a conference recently, because speaking of network and how everyone says you need to develop relationships for three or four years and all that kind of stuff. Um, I went to a conference full of LPs and all of them said the same thing. Uh, those that they invest in, they, you know, get to know personally, they don't just meet them on Zoom and invest, they need to have, you know, spoken to them for a certain amount of time, all that good stuff. And then I saw a piece of research, um, I think it was the Harvard Business Review, that showed that when a, a VC fund is raising from an LP, if that LP has a, an investment officer that is a minority, the chances of that, you know, VC being able to raise is 20%. 
And if there isn't a minority on the LP side in, in the investment committee, the chance is 4%. So that's a 5x difference there. Yeah. It's pretty much the difference between going to like a Harvard University admission rate kind of thing versus going to a state school, right? Like it's such a huge disparity, regardless yeah. of how good your thesis is, your team, all that good stuff. That one factor that's outside of you as the emerging manager can dictate whether you get money from that LP or not. So I always hypothesize that maybe seeing the network relationship um, as a way of, you know, allocating dollars might not be the best way possible because it introduces bias and all those kinds of things. So I think like blind screenings or blind ways of, of allocating dollars might be the best way. But have you ever thought about how relationship actually is not the best mechanic to use or mechanism for funding or... Yeah, I think you hear a lot about uh, I, this was probably 15 years ago, and I, I won't say that I was in VC 15 years ago, but <laughs> when Moneyball was like all that everybody talked about, it was like, of course, you should use data to do these things. Mm. Like the, the data tells you where to where to invest. And obviously, in that case, it was for baseball. But, you know, I you hear of a lot of funds that are using our data first and are using data to drive their returns, to drive their investment thesis, et cetera. And yet it seems to me, and I, I welcome anybody that is listening to, to your podcast, if they know of something else happening, please let me know. Um, but using anything data-driven to invest from LP to GP should also probably be something that we're looking at because if it is, if it continues to rely on people, we are still going to fall into the traps of bias in any way, shape or form. That's not to say that data is going to eliminate those, but mm. to your point, I think any blind evaluation or, you know, taking cold pitches or, you know, understanding that there's, there might be a different due diligence process for somebody that doesn't have as much of a track record and they shouldn't just be written off because that's an easy filter to use. Um, that that's something that I would personally like to see more of in the LP world. But um, again, have have only really heard anecdotally that that's not happening. Um, yeah. And so it would be, I think it would be very interesting to see how data could lead to more equitable distribution of LP capital. Um, but when I talk about LPs in that in that way, it really is talking about like the pension funds, the endowments, the really like large institutional LPs. Because um, when it comes to family offices, fund of funds, some of those, like it's, they just don't have as much money to put to work. They don't move the needle as much when it comes to, that's not to say that they shouldn't do the work, but the, the amount of capital that they have to deploy is just less. Absolutely. Is there anything that mandates pension funds or large endowments to share their data in terms of how they're investing into you know, different races or, or, or even different genders in terms of the funds they back or not. So really. they do have, they do have to uh, divulge who they are investing in. However, there does not need to be a, uh, I, I don't believe that there needs to be any kind of um, gender or race or any kind of survey done at that level. I know that a lot of LPs are doing that, um, but it doesn't necessarily get shared publicly. Um, and this is something that we've actually talked to a couple of GPs about because with the case going before the Supreme Court this year about uh, affirmative action in college admissions and not being able to use race as a factor for evaluation there, as well as or combined with all of these states, and I'm specifically thinking of Florida pulling out of BlackRock 
because they're too woke and there's this ESG metric that they're using. Um, I think it, it, it's, it is too difficult to say now how or whether funds are going to, LPs are going to start using this as a way to distinguish between funds, whether they can track it, whether that invites criticism or praise. Um, I think that there's there's a lot of moving pieces on the policy side of things that it's it's hard to tell where we're going to end the year in terms of, you know, are, are we allowed to track this? Are we allowed to use it as a, as a factor in decision-making when it comes to investment of public money um, or of money at, at nonprofits and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. What was the most surprising thing to you from the report that you released? Um, I think the most surprising thing to me was the amount of capital that came from fund of funds for underrepresented GPs and that was, or for, for GP, sorry, for funds with a DEI mandate. Um, I think when we went into it, our hypothesis was, you know, it's going to be a lot of family offices. It's going to be a lot of high net worth individuals, but anything that's fund of funds, pensions, sovereign wealth funds, it's going to be virtually non-existent and high net worth individuals. We were right on, uh, pension funds and sovereign wealth funds. We are also mostly right on. They don't show up that often on the cap tables of, of GPs um, from underrepresented backgrounds. But the fund of funds, it was significantly more likely that a an underrepresented GP or a GP with a mandate to invest in underrepresented founders had a fund of funds in its limited partnership. Um, and I think that kind of speaks to, and this is where we, we need to see a little bit more research um, from us or, or from anybody is looking at those, like who are those fund of funds and not necessarily the names of those fund of funds, but are these groups that were created or organizations that were created to make investments into specifically these type of funds. And that's why they're showing up a lot more often. Um, what was surprising to me on the other side is that family offices actually are much more likely to be represented on the homogenous or kind of traditional VC side. Um, I think coming from a, a background where I worked in impact investing, all the family offices that I interacted with were like very progressive, very forward thinking. Um, but when you when you talk to a couple of VCs after this finding, they were like, yeah, a lot of the family offices that we know just invest in people that they know. And so it's not as it's not as formalized of a process to invest in VC from a lot of family offices, let alone to have an additional um, kind of lens or mandate on top of that to invest in funds with a specific focus. Absolutely. And I'm thinking in terms of like practical resources, um, you mentioned that fund of funds invest more in underrepresented VCs and things of that nature. Are there any resources in terms of either lists or the database of those fund of funds or just anything that could either help an emerging fund manager? And I guess likewise, on the other side, um, that can help LPs that are trying to look for emerging fund managers. Yeah, I think so. For on the LPs looking for emerging managers, what I have heard from some LPs is they really do look to some of these uh, VC accelerators or GP accelerators. So VC Lab, Operator, uh, even Kaufman Fellows, there are folks in there that have been VCs but are starting their own funds. Like They're keeping track of who's coming through those programs because they want to see who is really you know full-time committed to this 
endeavor of, of building their own VC. Um, even if it means that they're not really creating or they're not investing yet, but they're creating that relationship really early on. Um, and so I think that that's, that's a place that LPs can go. LPs can also frankly come to organizations like diversity, VC, black VC, Latinx VC, VC Familia, which all have these relationships with GPs or, or up and coming VCs that are looking for capital. Um, and we can be that connective tissue between, between the two. When it comes to the VCs that are looking for capital, um, again, we can be a resource. Um, not surprisingly, there is not just like a website that you can go to that says, here are all the LPs that are investing in this. But I think, you know, a, a small amount of Googling and just connecting with other VCs that are from underrepresented backgrounds, a lot of them have spoken to everybody. Um, what comes to mind immediately is, you know, Carta is making these investments. Uh, SVB is making some of these investments. Google is making some of them. Um, uh, Bank of America is also making these investments and they're being quite public about it. And so trying to, to reach out to those folks and connect with them, they're probably very well connected and well uh um, have a good kind of view into the ecosystem of who else is making the investments. I think the the unfortunate reality is there's only a handful of those that are doing it from like name brand institutions versus a lot of these underrepresented GPs are going out and raising from high net worth individuals and other uh, other kind of like not headline news making organizations. And so it takes a lot of footwork to to really get those relationships going yeah absolutely one of the criticisms i've heard is that whenever you engage with some of these larger institutions their due diligence process and what they require from an emerging fund manager is sometimes a bit ridiculous for a one-man band or yeah. two-man band it's like no i don't have a chief diversity officer or a compliance officer it's like i'm a one-man band trying to do all this so that ilpa right. document um, is kind of like ridiculous at times, like 50 pages of, you know, all sorts of things. And so that's one criticism I've heard um, a lot of people. For mention. Sure. And that's, yeah. I mean, again, that's a, that's kind of a structural barrier of it's, it's well-intentioned. It is not matched to the market in terms mm -hmm. of like, where is the need? Um, so, and not, to, not even to speak of the fact that we're, uh, I think everybody expects that we're going into a downturn, like, how much do these things matter during a downturn to a lot of these organizations? Do they stick to their guns or are they, are they willing to kind of scrap some of these initiatives or take a, and you can see this already in the founder numbers, like the amount of funding that's going to underrepresented founders is dipping as the economy seems to go down. So what's going to happen to the investors that are trying to raise to put more money into those types of founders? So I think yeah. that there's probably more staying power than there has been in the past, but um, I, I I would call on all of those LPs to really hunker down and say, like, this is something that we have to remain committed to, knowing that, like, emerging managers all across the board are going to be, whether they're underrepresented or not, it's going to be a tough couple of years. Um, but we shouldn't assume that just because they are from a more uh, less traditional background or that you know whatever whatever filter we would typically use to filter them out um this is it's potentially a strength that they're not from this traditional background 
um, that they have deal flow that's not coming from, you know, the, the same couple of places that we've seen it with all of our other VCs. So think about it as, you know, you are diversifying your portfolio by making these investments. Absolutely. I love the fact that you said that, because if you look at the demographic trends as well, Gen Z, who are sort of more digitally native than any other generation before them, they're creating new ideas and, you know, new concepts and new startups. And they're the most diverse in the history of the United States. I mean, I think it's more than 50% of them are, you know, from minority backgrounds or, you know, the gender and things of that nature or the gender discussion. And so it's sort of like, um, if the LP or the VC community don't tap into these networks that they haven't traditionally had, they're going to miss out on the next billion dollar company. Um, and I think ultimately, as demographics change, sort of that wealth transfer, the new ideas coming to to, to the foray discussion, all, all those types of things are, are you know in flux and they're changing. And I think as America changes, everything else is going to change with it. And I, I don't think people are really mm-hmm. thinking about that too much. I don't know if you've thought about that demographic or kind of the future of the U S sort of uh, discussion. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's, it's, uh, it's a game in impatience for me. Cause it's kind of <laughs> like, this is, this is coming. And if you're not prepared for, or if you're still clinging on to like these old networks and these old ideas of how things should operate, you are going to miss out on that. And I think that when there are on on the flip side, when there are things like FTX and Theranos and all of these, um, all of these like big blowups that happen, people start to get a lot more risk averse and think this is, you know, I want to stay away from this. I'll wait until it's settled down. And historically, this has been the best time to make investments. And I think if you, it, but it's also a time to take stock and say, okay, where are things actually going? And exactly as you said, looking at like, what does the next generation of this look like? You, it, it is impossible to miss that it is going to be more diverse than any, any demographic has been, or any generation has been before them. And so look at what they're doing. Look at what, um, look at what the organizations that are, are, working with Gen Z are doing. Um, but it's, uh, I think that there's also like, again, as I said, it's a game and impatience because you're kind of like, okay, I'm, I'm waiting for, you know, the managing director of this, uh, organization to retire so that somebody from the millennial class or Gen X can come in and like, maybe they're a bit more, um, forward thinking or progressive when it comes to how they're, they're evaluating, because I think people and not, not, necessarily because they have bad intentions but it's it's easy to get stuck in your ways and to say i'm doing pattern recognition but not necessarily taking a step back and and really looking into okay what are the biases that are part of that pattern recognition that are keeping you from exploring other opportunities absolutely i want to be super respectful of your time um but i want to end on maybe a a bit of a personal note but obviously you don't have to do this you could have stayed in your regular (laughs) day job you know um, lived in uh, sort of New York City or Boston and just kind of had a cushy existence, but you're deciding to do this. And so why is this important to you? Why are you spending your time uh, talking about diversity and venture capital? Why is it important to Sarah? Yeah, I think, I mean, it, it dates back to, you know, when I joined the fund that I was a part of uh, years ago as the only woman. And granted, we were we were three people. So it wasn't like I was... Uh, you know, one woman on a team of 30, which happens. Um, but I think, you know, I, I had enough experiences of being the only 
in the room that uh, and I have I spent a lot of my prior career working with uh, Latin American populations and didn't see any of those people in the room and was just realizing like this is really missing it, it, it. I guess there's two components. One is this is missing an entire swath of society that, you know, when I walk into a, a pitch room or I walk into you know, a room where a founder is telling me what they think the world is. And it's a product that only focuses on the top 1%. Like I know a lot of VCs who would back that because that's the world that they live in. Whereas they walk into a founder that's building something for the 99% and think, well, that doesn't have a market. And so it was partially like, we are missing out on opportunity by not focusing on this problem. But it also honestly just comes from a, a place of like, I'm, my mother would hate me for saying this. I'm a middle child and I, my concept of what is fair is like very, very well honed because I saw things happen with my older siblings and my younger siblings that I was like, that's not fair. I didn't get to do that. And so seeing the unfairness and the, the inequity of the fundraising, the um, the process of building a company for underrepresented uh, founders and VCs just felt so patently unfair to me that I felt if there's anything that I can do to try and fix this, like that is time well spent. Um, and there's probably a selfish element to it as well. That's like, if these people are successful, hopefully I get to, you know, tag along for the ride in some way. But um, it, it really comes down to like, I, I have a deep seated feeling of the injustness or the, the unfairness of the way that the world operates for some of these people. And it, if I can help put them in a place that makes that better, then the world is better off and it creates more opportunity for everybody. So Absolutely. Wow. That's incredible. It's so interesting how we have very similar drives towards what we do. Um, my kind of drive is I've always wanted to live in a world where the best ideas can succeed regardless of who they come from, because ultimately yep. we, we all benefit um, from certain creations, startups or whatever it is. I don't care if Google was founded by someone that was blue, purple, it doesn't matter. We all benefit yeah. from it. And so just the concept that the world functions in that way where it depends on your network and, you know, certain things, I just think it's such a, a travesty. And then speaking about being a middle child, I'm the firstborn in my family and um, oh, what I, I yeah, what, yeah. And <laughs> What I noticed was if I wanted to get the PlayStation, I had to get all A's. Um, but if my younger siblings wanted to get it, all they had to do was, you know, put the cutesy eyes on and then like cuddle up and then all of a sudden oh. they got it. I'm like, dude, that's not fair. <laughs> yeah, it always, I mean, being in the middle, um, you see both sides. I don't feel like I was ever given the, um, that I was ever given anything for a cutesy smile, but the younger siblings definitely were. They have it easy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, on that note, we'll kind of end it there. Hopefully we'll have you back again for another episode. But um, what what ways can people reach you or do you have any like final yeah. message that you want to share with the people? Uh, feel free. Yeah, I mean, uh, we have a bunch of different programs, uh, services. We have a community for Diversity VC. Please. I mean, I'm Sarah with an H at Diversity VC. Um, please reach out. We have research. We have an internship program. 
we have a community, we have an assessment that funds can go through to evaluate their policies and practices related to DEI versus just, you know, who are you investing in and who are you hiring? Um, and so come check out some of our work, um, get in touch with us. We'd love to talk to you. Um, and next time we send out our survey, fill it out. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Sarah. Take care. Thanks, Saka.